God's promise to a people in exile is restoration. Jeremiah, the prophet, is speaking to people who have been taken from their land and who have been intermarried and who have been asked to live in a strange land as strangers. And God's promise is that they will be restored to their homeland. The great procession home from foreign lands will include the blind and the lame. They will come with weeping, but with God's consolation. Sounds wonderful. But something we know from some things about human nature suggests that we frequently find salvation less compelling in practice than we do in theory. Uh, Historians, archaeologists, anthropologists and the like tell us that remarkably few people actually made the journey home once their captors' empires came to an end. It's, it's, it's why the beginning of the gospel is, is, is make straight the way of the Lord. It's the promise that those in exile will be brought home. Leading sit- citizens over generations had intermarried, raised children, got on with their lives in a new land. And so when the promise of the psalmist and the prophets of blessed return and renewal and restoration became a real possibility. There were plenty of exiles who found that they preferred to stay where they were rather than risk setting out for new land and a new start in a restored Zion. They went for the devil they knew rather than the hope of a restored world. And so we face the common spiritual question as to why so often when we are presented with hope, real newness of life, the promise of restoration, why do we so often fail to grasp the gift that is before us? Why do we turn our backs on grace? How does our sense of urgency for a better world for everyone get so dulled that we miss it? Now, it's not exactly the kind of thing that happens when someone offers you tickets to something wonderful at the last minute, the symphony or whatever, and you think, God, I'm tired. I think, I, I think I'd rather take a bath. You know, and it's, it's not exactly that kind of missing grace, but it's a cousin of that. For me and for many of us, the mechanisms that conspire to keep us from doing whatever it is we need to do that will restore us to a fundamental sense of being at home, at home in Eden, in paradise, at home in our own skin, at home in a place without anxiety or fear, a place of intrinsic meaning, the mechanisms that keep us from grasping grace include things like being too busy to take on something else at the moment, even if that something else is the key to everything else. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had. I've had them myself, but I've had them with people who really would enjoy and benefit from counseling or psychotherapy and for whom that would be the thing that would make the rest of life work if they could just make it a focus for a season. And somehow, however good it sounds, just so busy, can't imagine making room for one more thing, because that's what it feels like, even though that thing would make sense of the other things. Same is true of prayer. Same is true of exercise. You know, we all know if you exercise, you feel better, you sleep better, you're more alive, more in tune with life, more ready for the day, and yet things just kind of conspire for many of us much of the time that make it hard to do the thing we need to do to live more fully. That's, that's one level of gets in our way of, of, 
of accepting grace, but a more profound challenge to our embracing the good news is like those in exile who declined to return to Israel. And that's that over time we've settled for good enough. Many of us, much of the time, have settled and we've lost that sense that there's something great, that there's the promise of, of heaven, the promise of fullness, abundance of life today. Outward and visibly things are fine, but we find ourselves in a season where we've lost our spark, our potency, our passion for life. Nothing's really wrong. We sure could use some task, some direction, some challenge, some work that would call us back toward the love that really matters. And yet when the call comes, yeah, life's pretty good as it is. It's incidentally why a capital campaign such as we're talking about and in fact undertaking after Christmas can be a great time of spiritual renewal for a community of faith who focus and engage and meet a challenge. It's, it's a kind of spiritual renewal that will happen. But even so, when the call to return from exile is less about reorganizing life around some habit or practice and more demanding of a kind of fundamental shift, the kind of call that can be hard to hear, the call to change jobs, the call to move from a city you love, the call to downward mobility, perhaps, or, or even higher calling, the call to marriage and committed partnership, or the extraordinary call of giving birth and raising children. Extra those calls mean that everything gets turned upside down. Everything gets shifted. And, and it's hard to describe the grace that comes with hearing that call and responding. St. Paul knew all about this. St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, wrote about the law and how he didn't always find it easy to follow. He said, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. And he muses on this for a number of incomprehensible sentences, and, and then he calls it sin. He says, the reason why I don't do what I should be doing is because of the sin that somehow dwells within me. Now, sin is not something entirely subject to our control and our decision, but it is up to us how we will address it when we find ourselves in it. Sin, you see, is not so much about breaking the rules, although the rules can be a clue. It's much more about acting without integrity, of acting out of some place other than wholeness of life. The consequence of sin is not so much punishment, although it can feel like that sometimes. The consequence of sin is more a kind of dislocation and alienation a kind of exile from that place where we can be comfortable in our own skin. It's kind of being kicked out of Eden is what's the consequence of sin. And sin and its consequence cry out for restoration. It's just sometimes true that the pain has to be great enough to make us really want something different from ourselves. And then the hope has to break in enough for us to claim it and claim the promise. Our hope has to be something other than that to which we pay lip service and instead be something to which we have to respond with every part of our being when it's presented to us. So salvation is our choosing the way of in integrity, choosing freedom from anxiety, choosing risk and adventure over security, choosing 
holiness or wholeness of life, even when it seems and feels so costly. Getting there usually means letting go of something we think is really important, something we imagine we don't want to forego. At the very least, salvation always requires a hard-won change in our habits. And so Bartimaeus, great Bartimaeus, blind man, marginal person, beggar, sitting on the margins of a road of a marginal city. We don't have to believe, as many did in Jesus' day, that his blindness was a consequence of someone's sin, his or his parents, in order to grasp that he's being confronted with the same question with which we all get confronted in many ways. Do you want fullness of life? Can there be something better for you? Do you want abundant and eternal life? Can you imagine living with absolute integrity? See, Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of that road, and he hears a crowd going by. hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing. He's heard something about Jesus, and he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Was this pre-forethought? Probably not. I hear it as being more like, could you help me get something to eat? Can you share a few shekels? I need a bus ticket to get to the shelter. Just an opportunity. And people try and hush him, and he won't be hushed. He knows there's an opportunity here, and he keeps crying out, and Jesus stops. And Jesus says, call him up. He's calling you. And Bartimaeus, thinking, well, I don't know, must be something in it, throws off his beggar's cloak, stands up, goes to Jesus, and then is confronted with perhaps the most chilling question of the gospel. What do you want me to do for you. What do you want, really? Just want to go on, same old, same old, here's a dollar. Or do you want something else? Jesus already has a clue because he'd left his uniform, his beggar's uniform behind. And Bartimaeus did not have to hit bottom, or perhaps he was already at living at the bottom, but he went for the radically new. He risked complete change. He wasn't going to be able to beg anymore if Jesus healed him. He said, Rabbi, my teacher, let me see again. Rabbi, restore my sight. Bring me home from exile. Lead me in the way that makes for abundant life. And Jesus gave him his sight, and his way was to follow Jesus. This is no appeal for cheap grace. This is a man risking everything he knows, actually, to reach for the things he really wants in life. No more excuses. No more accepting this dreadful lot. No more whining. It's so hard. And instead, he chooses newness of life, the wonder of seeing the world anew, the challenge of making a living in some new way, a reaching for integrity, a reaching for wholeness. Brothers and sisters, each of us knows what we have to do to continue our response to the gospel, the habits we need to develop that will make it possible to hear the call when it comes. I don't know precisely what it is for you, but I know that it's not easy, and I know that whatever it is is not straightforward, but it's important that we not forego the good in favor of the good enough. It's important that we stay alive to grace. In conversation with parents and godparents yesterday, 
We thought about what it means to help these children and each other see the way things are truly in the community of faith. And part of that is helping each other remember what is truly important in life and how that includes paying attention to the little things along the way if we wish to grasp the big moment and pray with Bartimaeus when asked, what do you want? Things good enough? What do you want really? And to pray, Rabbi, to pray what? Rabbi, what is it for you?